If you didn't get your Bibles yet to Ephesians chapter 5, I'd love for you to join me there. Ephesians 5, that's in the latter half of the book. Good luck finding it. We had just finished a series called Prayerology, uh, which I think we're going to start every year off with uh, studying and practicing prayer together as a church family and setting our faces or our hearts to seeking the face of God. Um, this year, uh, we're going to take February and we're going to be in this new series real quick called When Sinners Say I Do. It's a series on the marriage covenant uh, and the, what the Bible has to say about the marriage covenant. Now, of course, as soon as you hear that, you're probably thinking, oh, this one's for me, right? This series is for me because I'm married. Yay, it's going to be for me. And then the other half of you are thinking, I'm not in a marriage relationship. How is this going to be for me? And you've already resolved in your heart that you're not going to show up until March when this series is done. <laughs> Doesn't apply to me. Now, before you uh, teenagers or you single adults or you divorcees or you widows or widowers check out and say, I'll see you in March, um, I, I want to convince you as to why this series is for absolutely every single one of us. Okay, so let me take that time real quick before we get into God's Word. First off, you teenagers, I hear the talks that you're having at group. I hear you girls are curious about how do you know when you found a good one? Ta-da! I'm going to help you with that. You single adults that are looking for the day when you are married, don't you think it'd be good to know what the covenant marriage looks like before you jump in? Right? To know all the details, what's being asked of you? Yes, it would be very helpful to know all of that ahead of time. Now, others, for those of you who are single, right, this will serve very positively to instruct you, and this will serve possibly to even convince you, yeah, man, I really want to be married. It'd be great. And this will help with that. Others of you who are single, this series might actually do the opposite. It might say, no, actually, I'm realizing I probably shouldn't be married for a few reasons. One, God may have designed you to be content in singleness. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul's like, hey, that's better, right? Like for the kingdom of God, it's better for you to remain single and offer yourself wholly to the Lord in that way. So, so maybe this series is going to be like, yeah, I'm content with my singleness and praise God for you. That is an incredible gift. Now, Others of you, you're going to be in the series and you're going to find out that marriage isn't for you in a negative sense. Friends, I've come across some men as they talk about what they look for in a wife and how they want their wives to make them happy. I've become more and more convinced that they'd be better off getting a goldfish than a wife. Because what they want from a wife is for her to look pretty and have long flowing hair and for her to not talk to them and him not to have to talk to her to ask about her day. Goldfish don't ask you about your day and they don't expect you to listen to them when they tell you about its day. Some of you would be better off getting a goldfish after today. Some of you, like I'm, I'm surprised, I don't know how it happened I don't know what I did to convince my wife to marry me. I found out long into the marriage that I was really immature, and I headed into my marriage with really selfish motives. In fact, I asked the Lord not to return until I could get married. I actually did ask him that. I told him, God, please don't come back until I can get married, right? Like we, 
Because I wanted things in the marriage that I was waiting for in the marriage, if you catch my drift. Now, for those of you single adults, right, teenagers, that's obviously going to help you in this way. Now, for those of you who have uh, unfortunately been through marriage already and it's behind you and your marriage broke apart, Maybe this series will help answer some questions you have. Maybe it will clarify some things for you. And I'm praying that it does because I personally don't know the pain of divorce, but I've seen it. And I see how long it can linger. And so I'm praying that this would serve to just work up a, a, a new joy in God's good gift of marriage. But I also realize that there's a, a large number among us who are, um, who have experienced uh, the, the worst pain that I can ever imagine, and that is the death of a spouse. I realize we have many of you here, and we love you, and this series is not designed to rub things in, right? It's not designed to reopen closed, healed wounds. Um, every single one of us especially those of us who are growing into maturity into the image of Christ, have a mandate on our lives to allow ourselves to be used by the Lord as instruments of discipleship for the next generation. And so for those of you who are widows or widowers, like that command is still yours. And most likely, the people that you're going to be ministering to and discipling will probably be married. And so if you're willing to approach this series with a selflessness, looking at that person that you want to disciple and to build them up in their faith, then I hope this series is helpful for you in that regard. Have I convinced all of you that this series is for you? Anybody not convinced yet? If you said no, I'm all out of answers. I don't have anything else, so good luck. But I promise you, I want, I want, to, I want to ask you to commit to being involved in this whole month because this whole month, we're going to laugh together. We're going we're gonna to cry together. We might shout together. Um, we're definitely going to feel convicted about some things and look for hope. Sounds like a pretty good marriage, doesn't it? So let's commit in on this. Now, this series is actually named after a book called When Sinners Say I Do. And it's written by a guy named Dave Harvey. And he opens the book with a cute little story that I think is a great way for us to start what today we're going to be looking at in Ephesians 5. Multicolored beams of light sprinkled the sanctuary as the great doors swung apart. A processional hymn blended into the sweet spring air wafting through the open windows. As family and friends rose to their feet, the dark wood of the pews creaked at the sounds of tradition, decorum, and propriety. Trembling imperceptibly and biting her lip for composure, the bride began her wedding march, a walk she had rehearsed in her attic for two decades. Her destination, an eager young man, a bundle of energy in a tuxedo. A smile had hijacked his face and his eyes danced with delight as he beheld his approaching bride. I don't know about you, I was crying like a, I was crazy. I was so ugly. You can see all the pictures like it was messed up. Like I looked like I was having a lot of pain in my life. <laughs> it was my bride though, man. She's beautiful. The officiating minister, 
nodded approvingly as the father of the bride made the ceremonial transfer, placing his daughter's hand in the groom's. And the pastor began with these words. Mowage is... I'm just kidding. He doesn't say that. If there be any here who can give a reason why this man and this woman should not be joined, speak now or forever hold your peace. Everyone, you know how awkward that silence is? Is somebody going to say something? Everyone waited with polite anticipation as the clergyman paused for this obligatory nod to custom. And suddenly an old man's voice pierced the polite silence. How do you know? He stood near the back, clutching the pew in front of him, piercing eyes aflame with passion. I, I, I mean no disrespect, he appealed it, as every last face turned in his direction. But, but how do you know, like, I mean, really know that this marriage is going to work? His tone was earnest, not defiant. His outburst may have been startling to the congregation, but it was so sincere. And then with his voice and eyes lowered, his final words came slowly and deliberately. How can anyone know? How can anyone know their marriage is going to work? What, 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 like, in fact, what makes it work, right? Like, when you hear this question being posed at this wedding ceremony, like, what counsel would you give? What advice would you shout out? Not, Not here, just think about it. Some of you would say, well, there's four simple rules to a healthy marriage. One, you've got to have one date a week. One, you've got to do something every week as well. And then another, right? Like, just all this rules, right? Some of you would say, up. The key to a healthy marriage, communication. Communication is key. Without it, everything falls. Some of you would say, no, 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 no. You got to get, get a good financial advisor. You got to get a good, robust stock portfolio. And you got to make sure that you take out the biggest headache to any bad marriage. That's money. Some of you would more seriously suggest you got to try to find out if he has an anger problem before you're married. Or some of you might counsel and say, you've got to figure out if, if they've got loads of credit card debt before you commit to them. In fact, I would even suggest that some of you would probably say, in response to this man's question, marriage just doesn't work. Don't try it. Don't go into it. It just doesn't work. Now, that's exactly what our society is shouting right now. That's what everyone around us is saying. Marriage just doesn't work. Don't bother. Right now, in the U.S., we are at the record low in our country's existence for the marriage rate. Uh, back, it shot up back in 1947, go figure. Um, and right now it's uh, six people married per every 1,000 people.
Now, a lot of people would just simply look at the divorce rate and say, oh, divorce is going down. That's a positive. Well, if there aren't enough marriages to end in divorce, then the divorce rate's going to go down anyways. If nobody's getting married, marriages can't divorce, right? They can't divorce. So marriage is in a pretty rough spot right now. In fact, right now, the popular thing to do is not to marry. The popular thing to do is called cohabitate, right? That's the thing that, that a lot of people try, right? It's, 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 it's trying it before you buy it, right? It's taking it for a test run. See if it works. See if you're compatible. You know, what's funny, though, is that we think that cohabitation is a new thing. It's a new dynamic. In reality, no, it actually spiked in the 70s. There's an article in 1987 published by the LA, uh, the LA Examiner, uh, Herald Examiner. On November 14, 1987, they published this article that carried, basically it says, living together is out. Area psychologists agree that the social experiment that reached its zenith in the early 1970s is coming to an end. In 87, they thought cohabiting was done. Circle of life. Right? Just came right back. It came back with a vengeance. In fact, right now, statistically speaking, in America, 23% of adults have cohabitated, while only 15% of adults have married. It's the popular thing to do. Now, we can look at this and we can say, well, marriage is in a failed state. I would argue and say, no, 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 no. Marriage isn't what is in a failed state. We are in what's in a failed state. And we are missing out on one of God's greatest gifts to humanity. And that is healthy, Christ-exalting marriages. Marriage being and if you want a definition, it's the self-giving covenant relationship between one man and one woman for all of life. Now, just a quick side note. Some of you have personally come and approached me about this topic because it's a very controversial topic these days and it's hot button. And I just want to go ahead and say from the book, I can't preach every week on social issues. I can't preach every week on marriage. But since we're talking about it, I'm going to go ahead and say our denomination and our church has no plans to redefine marriage. God defined it for us. We'll let him keep the definition. We won't assume the role of God and redefine his gifts for us. One man, one woman for all of life. But what makes that marriage work? What makes it powerful? Is it trying it before you buy it? Is it good communication strategies? Is it having good healthy rules and boundaries? Is it a good investment portfolio? What makes a marriage work? And when I say work, I'm not talking about surviving. I'm talking about thriving. I'm talking like it's powerful. There's beauty and romance and life in the marriage. What makes that work? What's its pattern? What's its power? So if you're somebody who desires to have right now or one day in your future a God-glorifying, functioning, thriving, romantic marriage, I promise you today is your day. Because we're going to be in Ephesians 5, 
where uh, the text actually, this is the longest passage in the New Testament on the topic of marriage. Paul just gave counsel to uh, the Christian, uh, how to live, how we're to live with one another. In fact, the last thing he tells us right before these uh, passage, the passage that we read is that we are, as believers, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that we as Christians just have this natural capacity. We're under submitting to one another and caring for one another and one another's needs. Now, what we're going to do in this text is we're not going to go strictly verse by verse. I can only have enough time to make a few observations that bring us to this big ultimate point. Answering the question is, what is the power and pattern for marriage? But there will be times where I do need to take a second to sidestep and talk about something it says because I think it addresses current issues today. Because Paul here counsels, he gives commands and counsel to both wives and to husbands in their marriage relationship. The first command in verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Oh, Lord. Now, I will, Lord willing, one day be able to talk about this in full depth. It's not enough time today. It's controversial because in our, unfortunately, with our baggage, we think submission sounds like slavery. We think that, that submission is becoming subordinate. It means that you're being demeaned, that you're lesser than, and that's not what the Scripture says. And here's a quick point to argue against that. Uh, 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 Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. Does that mean he became lesser than the Godhead? Mm-mm. The Holy Spirit submits himself to the will of the Son in sending out Does that mean the Holy Spirit's no longer as valuable or as important or significant as the Son? No. This is God we're talking about. Within God, there's this nature of mutual submission. So so it can't be with all of this baggage that we come with. It can't be that. It can't be slavery. It can't be demeaning or subordinate like you're becoming lesser value. That's not it. And another thing that I need to mention is because Paul says here, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Everything, everything, not to sin. Women, you do not submit to your husbands when they are abounding in sin. When they ask you to do things or lead you in ways that are going against God's will and word, you do not submit. Same way with our government, right? Right? We don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't act that way. Men, you be the best men you can be, so it's easy for them. Because, like, what if, ladies, what if your husband were just, like, really godly? Like, what if he really loved Jesus? In fact, that's my counsel to you who are single. Find the godliest person you can know and try to convince them to marry you. I think that's what I did, right? Like, that's how I, that's how, I don't know how it happened, but it happened. What if, women, what if your husbands were so Christ-like that they were so devoted to Jesus? Wouldn't that make it a lot easier to be in obedience to this command? So then it's the impetus of the husband to be as Christ-like as possible. Now, that's the command for the women, for the wives. There's a command for the husbands, and it's verse 25. Husbands, what's the command? 
love your wives. Love your wives. Agapao, the, it's the self-giving, unconditional love. Now, this is, this is uh, kind of simple, right? We think, well, that's what I... Some of us men think that we did that when we said, I do, and that's it, right? This is daily. This is every day committing yourself to loving your bride. It's not just a once and done thing. Now, Paul, at the end of this, in verse 33, he says, to sum up, basically everything he's saying, to sum up, each one of you husbands is to love your wife as himself, which makes sense because now they're one flesh, and the wife is to respect her husband. Her husband. Now, both of these commands... We could just be done with this, right? We can say these are the commands. We just got to obey them. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't leave them by themselves. He actually sends them with an attachment with them. He puts something with them. And it's a, it's, he actually tells us a pattern, something to model these after. Wives, says you are to respectfully submit to the headship of your husbands. After what model? After the bride, the church submits to the headship of Christ Jesus. And husbands, how are we to love our own wives? As Christ Jesus loved the church. And it says, and he, gave, he loved her so much, his bride, the church, so much that he gave himself up for her. All right, what does that mean? What's the one word that that means? He did what? He died. So if, if we're going to talk about who's got it harder in the marriage relationship, wives, submitting to your husbands. Husbands, dying for your wives. Who's got it worse? Husbands are to live in such a way that self doesn't exist within them. That every effort they make, everything they do, is for the benefit and the blessing of their wives. And that's self-sacrifice. That's me getting up on the altar, me picking up my cross, leading the way in Christ-likeness. So, I, I, I think husbands have it harder because we ought to be leading the way in pursuing Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it ought to be a joy for our wives to follow our leadership. Now, I realize that when I say that, there's probably this notion of, well, this is just archaic thinking. Scott, you got to get up into the modern age and, and rethink this marriage. What did I tell you at the beginning? I'm not going to redefine marriage. And I'm not going to redefine the roles. I'm just going to let God's word speak for itself. So if we can agree on this, then it's okay. But what Paul has done with these two commands, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives, is he, he put them with an attachment that comes with an image of Jesus with his bride, the church, the big C, capital C, church. 
And so what Paul is doing here is he's making these connections. He's offering us a pattern for which we are to model our marriages after. And what is the pattern? What is, what is the model? In one word, the pattern and the power for a Christ-exalting, thriving marriage is the gospel itself. The pattern and power for marriage is the gospel and nothing else. The gospel is the good news. It's the good news that we were made to live in beautiful, harmonious relationship with God and man. And and then sin came in and just, just totally broke that apart and disrupted the fabric of that relationship. And yet God in his infinite, unstoppable love sends his son, his one and only son, to come after us and to offer himself up on a cross so that we can be not only forgiven of all of our sins, but also cleansed and presented to Jesus as a spotless bride so that he can have us and we can have him for all of eternity. That's the gospel. And Paul is saying here that you are to model your marriage after that gospel. The gospel is, this, is the framework for how we're to conduct our marriages to the glory of Jesus. In fact, Tim Keller says it this way in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. So what do you need to make marriage work? You need to know the gospel and how it gives you both the power and the pattern for your marriage. Now, depending on which circle you grew up in of Christianity or maybe what you've heard in the past, some of you respond to this and you're saying, wait, it's the gospel that I'm to look at for modeling marriage, right? Like, I thought the gospel was just simply like hellfire insurance. I thought it was a way to become fireproof, right? To get my my get into heaven free card, right? Like, I thought that's what the gospel really is all about. And I just, I kind of believed it and I left it and now I'm just doing life with Christ, whatever it is, right? No, 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 guys. The gospel is not just a truth to accept. It's a truth to apply. It's a truth to live by. Titus 2, this is what Paul counsels uh, Titus and, and, and to the readers there in Titus 2. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, which, by the way, in short, is the gospel. He has sent his grace, sent his son to provide salvation for all people who would come to Christ, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. In other words, we here are to let the gospel of God's free saving grace instruct us. In other words, it's to teach us. that, That Greek word, it means to train or to discipline or to coach someone over a long period of time. In other words, the gospel isn't just a one and done thing. The gospel is something we live by. You must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel sink down deeply until it changes your views and the structures of your own motivations. You must be trained by and discipled by the gospel. I thought Jackie Hill Perry said it best when she said, some would have us to believe that it is possible to graduate from Christ's gospel, to treat it as if it was no different than Similac or high chairs. Or learning how to tie our shoes only so you can go move on to doing better things with your feet. But reality would have it 
that a departure from dependence on the gospel would be a departure from dependence on Christ himself. So brothers and sisters, the gospel is not just a truth to accept, it's a truth to apply, to let it invade and define how we relate to people in the world around us and to God. And the very first place that God wants you to take the applications of the gospel is into your marriage. It's into your covenant marriage relationship with your spouse. And you might think, yeah, but I really married a messed up one. They're so dirty. That's the gospel, right? That's exactly what Jesus did. He looked at us. He was like, man, they dirty. I want them. He came after us, right? The, mar- the, the first place God wants you to bring the gospel into is your marriage. Why? Because the, your marriage is supposed to be evangelistic. Your marriage is supposed to preach the gospel to the people around you. Your marriage is one of the most evident, tangible things on earth that displays the gospel. Look at, look at the end of, of verse 20 or 32. Or, let's start in verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, which is a quote from Genesis 2. This mystery which is the mystery of marriage, of one fleshness. It is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Marriage is supposed to point people to Jesus. And so let marriage be the very first place that you do all your diligent work to apply the gospel, to live it out in faith. And when you do, you will reflect more and more of the gospel in your marriage relationship. And as you reflect in your own life more and more on the nature, the power, the pattern of the gospel, it will overflow into your marriage. And those marriages that are simply just surviving like your glorified roommates will begin to revive. And then those marriages will begin to thrive. Let me show you how. We've got a little bit of time left. Let me show you how the gospel transforms marriages. If you want an easy way to remember the gospel, there's four big words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right? Creation, we were created to live life with God in a perfect world, created by him that he said is very good. But then the second premise of the gospel is the fall. In other words, in other words, it outs each and every one of us as having a problem. Of, uh, and the problem is that we are sinners. Right? Inherently born sinners. We don't become them after we sin first. We are born with this problem. That we're sinners. So sin is an archery term in the Hebrew meaning to miss the mark which means as sinners, we've missed the mark. We are people who have missed the mark. And I want to encourage you that it's okay for you to have this as part of your identity, not as all of it, because you are also saint. We are sinners and saints. I want you to be okay with understanding yourself as being sinful, 
mainly because Paul himself considered him that way. He considered himself that way. He, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. So I think if it's okay for Paul, the apostle, to like be content with this reality that he's not got everything together, and he's a sinner, I think it's okay for us as well to understand that we still have this brokenness in us. If you refuse to agree with that, Christ did not come for the healthy, he came for the sick. And if you do not confess your sins, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves and the truth of God is not in you. But if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if you refuse to at least go so far in the gospel to say, yeah, I've fallen, I'm a sinner, that will be detrimental to your marriage. You want to know why? You're going to do exactly what Adam and Eve did when they were confronted about their own sin. What they, right? they, they were told not to eat of the fruit. Adam had a responsibility to guard and keep the, the, the garden, but not only that, to protect his wife. And while his wife's there being tempted, he's just sitting there watching her being tempted, and she takes and eats, and she gives to him, and he eats as well. God confronts them, and, and what is their response? What is Adam's response? This, this chick you gave me, it's her fault. And then what's, what's Eve do? Yeah, but the, 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 the snake, it was his fault. He tempted me. When you cannot get to the second premise of the gospel and at least being willing to admit, yeah, I don't have everything together. I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm sinful. I make mistakes and I actually fail. And there's actually longings in my heart that aren't for holy things, that they actually desire the opposite. If you refuse to get that far, then your spouse will be the problem of your marriage, not you. They're the ones to blame for everything. It's their fault. If you're unwilling to say, no, I'm a sinner. But if you're willing to allow the gospel into your marriage in a way that you're willing to have as part of your daily construct of how you think about yourself in the world, that I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. Five things will happen. Here's how it will help your marriage if you are willing to recognize and reckon yourself as a sinner in need of grace. Here's the first way it helps. First, it recognizes the problem. It recognizes the problem. How many of you would say that your spouse is the, is the whole problem for your marriage? Caitlin's not here, so I can do this. I'm, I'm actually just kidding. Uh, 90% me, 10% her. This construct, being willing, and it's like it's okay to say that we're sinners, right? Welcome to the club. That's why we're all here. It causes us to focus on our own sin and brokenness first. Some of us have real easy propensities to be critical of everything else around them. I'm one of those. I can walk into a situation and see everything that's wrong. I walk into my home. That shouldn't be there. That belongs upstairs. That's the... You can go into your marriage with the same mentality, but if you go into your relationship saying, no, I, 
I, I have problems. I, I actually did this. I'm aware of how I was angry. I'm aware of how I lost my patience. I'm aware of, of the pride that I've got. Right? It recognizes the problem as yourself, which is great because you are the problem in your marriage. Notice how I didn't say your husband is or your wife is. No, it's just you. You are the biggest problem about your life. And God is working in you and moving in you. First, if you can recognize that you're a sinner, you recognize the problem at first. Secondly, when you do that, it reveals a disadvantage. It reveals the disadvantage. So guys, have you ever tried riding a bicycle with two flat tires? Or what about uh, trying to bake a cake with two spoiled ingredients? How's it turn out for you? Or, or, or what about trying to run a marathon with two broken legs? Have you done that? I thought so. Thank you. Thank you. It doesn't work. When you said I do, when you said I do, you came into this new covenant already at a disadvantage. You came with you because your heart isn't naturally longing for holy things. You don't naturally do relationships well. You don't naturally communicate well. And all the women in here said, Amen. You don't naturally love your spouse or others selflessly. All of that has to come from God's grace. And so, so it reveals that there's a disadvantage. Your, your marriage is already setting off with a disadvantage. But amazingly, those disadvantages, those weaknesses and hardships are actually the very environment in which God wants to do amazing, beautiful things. That's the second thing it can do. Here's the third thing that it can do when we recognize that it's okay to admit that we're sinful and to examine ourselves first in our marriage relationships, is that it fosters humility. It fosters humility. Guys, the times when I see the ways that I haven't measured up to loving my wife the way that she deserves and the way that I'm commanded to, it actually, uh, if you hang around there long enough, you just get guilty and, and, and it doesn't just drags you down in the mud. But if you're willing to allow it to run, cause your heart to run to God's grace, then there's this sense of, man, my wife is a really good gift. There's this sense of, and I, I don't deserve this. Thank you, God. She's incredible. It keeps you humble and grateful. Here's the fourth thing, that if you're willing to admit and apply the gospel that starts off with, I'm a sinner, it demands grace. It causes you every day to wake up saying, God, I really want to love my spouse like you've told me to love them and I know I can't do it instinctually or naturally, and I need your grace, so I'm going to throw myself upon your grace this day and rely on you on those new mercies so that I can love my wife well. Guys, your spouses will be so much better off when you're totally dependent upon God's grace to love them well. And not only that, not only does it cause you to, to, to ask for grace from the Lord, but it also means that you're willing to offer it whenever the other person messes up. And then fifth and finally, if you're willing to admit that you came into this relationship as a sinner and you still are, in many regards, broken, it makes way for the display of the gospel. It makes way for the display of the gospel. Let me show you from this book, 
Dave Harvey says, As we face the sad, painful, undeniable reality of our own remaining sin, as we see it for the bitter, hateful thing it is, and as we recognize sin's insidious goals at the core of every relational difficulty we encounter, something wonderful happens. We flee to the gospel as our only remedy. Brothers and sisters, the only remedy for your marriage, whatever state it's in, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. And so for the couple that was standing at the altar and had the old man interrupt the cordiality of the the question, and he said, how do you know this will work? While everyone was offering in their own heads their counsel, the, the pastor interrupted. He looked at his notes, then he looked at the audience. He said, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to dedicate this marriage to God. God, through his gospel, will make it work. Brothers and sisters, if there's anybody who knows that it's okay to not be okay, it's Christians, it's us. It's okay for you to not be okay. It's okay, you don't have everything together, we know it. And your spouse definitely knows it. But the safest place for us to admit that is in the light of the gospel. Because when we admit that, it's, that we're not okay, that we're not altogether whole, that we have brokenness within us, in the light of the gospel, we not only find forgiveness, but we also find cleansing as we confess that reality. So if you're willing to embrace the gospel as a pattern for marriage, and instead of looking to their faults and their problems, start with your own and admitting that you're a sinner in need of grace, your marriages will begin to start to flourish just a little bit more and, from, and move from surviving to thriving. And so if you're willing to admit it, if you're sitting next to your spouse, just lean over to them and whisper in their sweet ear, sweet nothings of, I'm a sinner and I'm yours forever. I didn't hear a lot of people doing it. I guess it's uncomfortable. <laughs> now, this whole month, we're, 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 we're setting ourselves to building up marriage relationships in the flock. And so one of the things that I want to do is I want to resource you. And um, this Sunday, I actually want to give this book away to a couple that will commit to read through it together this year. So, if okay, I saw a hand. Frisbee it. Good luck. I expect a book report when you're done. In more, more serious terms, though, I, 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 I've had the privilege of sitting on the front row of marriages that have been on the brink of divorce. And by God's grace, they've brought me in and I've been able to counsel them with God's word and the gospel as the model, as the pattern and the power for marriage. And I've seen those marriages turn around and begin to thrive by God's grace alone. And so if you and your spouse kind of know that your marriage is on the brink or if, if it's just kind of subtly suffering with one another, and there's no thriving nature to your marriage, I want to offer to you what I 
try to offer as all, always I can is, is counseling. I'd love to meet with you as a couple and you as one-on-one to, to shepherd you and to care for you in your marriage relationship because your marriage is supposed to be a proclamation of the gospel. And I care most about the gospel being proclaimed. And so if you would like to have any kind of marriage counseling, I'd love to meet with you one-on-one or uh, together as a couple. But all in all, the pattern and the power for a healthy, thriving, romantic, beautiful marriage is the gospel itself. So get very familiar with the gospel. And when the gospel thrives in your life, your marriage thrives. So with that, I just want to ask that we bow our heads and I just want to pray over you um, in response to all this. So God, we, we of all people uh, know the safety and the warmth that it is when we find ourselves confessing our sin. Uh, when we're willing to say that, that my anger actually caused the problem or that my pride caused my anger or that my, my whatever it is, whatever with fill in the blank, um, gossip, envy, uh, selfishness, that it, it is a root problem and the disadvantage of our marriages. But God, we desire Christ-exalting marriages in our church family. And so I pray, Jesus, that we... The work that we've done in January of setting individually ourselves to seeking and hungering after you. God, I pray that this month would be a month of couples together seeking and hungering after you for allowing their marriage to be a testament testifying to the gospel of Christ. God, I pray that that we would become so in tuned with, so enamored by, so amazed by the good news of Jesus that it would overflow into how husbands love their wives with a self-sacrificing, Christ-carrying love or cross-carrying love. And that wives, in following the headship of their husbands, would be overjoyed to agree with what you've said about how to complement one another in this role called marriage. God, please... Marriage is in such a failed state in the world around us. I pray that you would cause it to be in a thriving state here in this church family. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.